Joining us in this hour is a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Democracy at the University of California, and I'm here in Cali, and that's in Irvine, great place, and also a contributor to the American Prospect. He is Kevin O'Leary. Previously, Kevin was Times lead reporter on the West Coast for a couple of years, author of Saving Democracy, A Plan for Real Representation in America, and he has a newer book, and uh, that's Trump. And the Roots of Rage, the Republican Right, and the Authoritarian Threat. It is available now, and you can get it at Amazon.com. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. Hi. Great to be on your show. And um, uh, as one progressive pundit to another, thank you for writing a great book. We appreciate you uh, putting this out. Thank you very much. What made you, first of all, write this? What prompted you to write this? Because, you know, I have rage when I see Trump and when I hear him speak. Yeah. And I was on TV today and, like, the, uh, the, the screen was going dark. You know, the feed was dropping. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is lovely. He's dissolving visually before my eyes. But, um, it, but, right. but, ser- but on a serious note, what, what prompted you to write not only about Donald Trump but specifically – uh, about rage and the roots of that rage, not only within, uh, but within the party. Right. I mean, I started this way before Trump emerged. I mean, a couple of years back, more than two years, I was looking at, you know, Obama and Congress and trying to figure out why was there such difficulty, right? Why was there such obstruction? Um, and then I just started investigating that. And living on the West Coast, I went to grad school at, at Yale on the East Coast, but I'd never really learned enough about the Deep South and Reconstruction and the aftermath. And I started looking into George Wallace, and I looked behind George Wallace, and I just kind of had to learn about the, um, the history of slavery, which we all know, but there's, but, there's, but there's some important points that a lot of people gloss over or just don't. So let me just say this about my book. It's a, it's a primer. It's 170 pages. It's a brisk read because I'm both a journalist and a political scientist. And I'm trying to play out. It's both polemical and analysis. I'm a journalist, and I usually wouldn't go out and make a pointed critique of one side. But when I started looking at this, it became apparent to me that we've seen the Republican Party drift to the right. And I was trying to get you know, some traction on that, like what happened and why. And it turns out that um, when you had Reagan in office, he had some very conservative ideas, but he was also a liberal at heart in the sense that he was from California. He grew up in Illinois. His parents weren't racist at all. He wasn't. He used race strategically, tactically as a candidate. Um, but then when he left the stage, and he was never as, his rhetoric was hardcore right sometimes, but when he governed both in California and in Washington, when he worked with Tip O'Neill, when he worked with the California legislators on the, on the Democratic side, he passed all kinds of things that the right was upset with. Um, and then when he left the stage, the party shifted more toward the south. Um, and so the book gets into that, and I, I can go further, but I'll let you ask another question or if you want me to keep going with that. Why don't you keep going with that first, then I'll ask you another one. Okay. So basically, it turns out, if you look at the Deep South, our key historic mistake was the aftermath of the Civil War. We lost 800,000 people in that war, um, and Lincoln's dead, and Thaddeus Stevens is leading the so-called, at the time, called Radical Republicans, the good guys in the North. And Stevens has this great idea that doesn't happen. He wants to break up the plantations in the South, the big land 
owning um, blocks of farms where the power lies. Um, he didn't want to. He didn't want to hang the Confederate leaders, but he wanted to do that. But the North was so tired, and Reconstruction failed. So what happens is, from 1865 to 1965, a one-party group runs the South, and they're not at all like the people in the North. If you look at the North, okay, and you think about American politics and why this is a really great country, we're great because we looked at Europe. You know, a lot of us who are Anglo, my name's Irish last name, but this applies for everybody who comes here. But at the the beginning, it was people who left Europe. They left Europe to escape an aristocracy that ran everything and was brutal to the people below. And so we rejected, this is a key theme in my book, we rejected privilege, hierarchy, inequality, and exclusion. Now, of course, all of those things, privilege, hierarchy, inequality, and exclusion, all those things take place. But in America versus other societies, you have to make an argument for there being excessive amounts of those, those four values. The place where that didn't happen, the place that was against all those values, was the Deep South. And it stayed that way after the war. So my argument is we're a deeply liberal country, liberal in a philosophic sense about these values, about America was going to be a place where you had liberty and equality and democracy, and not just liberty for the super wealthy. That that stayed in the Deep South. Now, to continue, if your listeners will stay with me one more minute, what and that's what we was, have before break, so quick. <laughs> yeah. What, what happened was that the Deep South was one bad element in American politics, but they were inside the Democratic Party, the old Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt. They, were, they had their ideas, but they didn't control the party. They were an element, right? On the other side, the Republican Party had all kinds of people from the bull moosers around Teddy Roosevelt who were progressives, to more moderate people, to classic conservatives like the, an old Senator Howard Taft. And then they had the right that coalesced around Barry Goldwater and um, Buckley. Okay, so let's, like hold, let's hold that th- uh, right there. We're going to yeah. take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about how the GOP, the grand old party, um, has changed from them to now and how much Trump has played into that corruption by the right. We'll be back. And we're back with Kevin O'Leary, recent book entitled Trump and the Roots of Rage, the Republican Right and the Authoritarian Threat, available at Amazon.com. He's a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Democracy at the University of California, Irvine. He also contributes to the American Prospect. Kevin, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, You were talking about a Barry Goldwater Republican or getting to that era of Republicans. Just in the interest of time, um, what what has happened in short to the GOP from – pre-Goldwater, Goldwater Republicans, and, and then now, and, and how much is Trump responsible for where the GOP is now, what the GOP stands for, or at least how the okay. GOP is perceived? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in a, to doing this in four steps, I said before the break that America is a deeply liberal country in terms of its values, ideals, and that's true. So if you start there, that's step one. Step two, the two portions of our history that don't agree with that are the elites that ran the Old South and some of the elites in the business class on the far right that want to have liberty just for them to do whatever they want, no regulation, no government. Step three, getting to Trump. It begins with Wallace. Wallace is brilliant. George Wallace is brilliant. He suggests to Barry Goldwater in 1964 that he be his presidential vice presidential nominee. That was bizarre at the time, and Goldwater said no because Wallace was a Democrat. 
But Wallace saw the future. He saw this combination of two forces taking over the Republican Party. So the old South comes together with the new right. The new right, it wasn't enough. They could not have done what's happened to the Republican Party by themselves. They needed what Wallace added. And, and the genius of Wallace was he took the old racial rage, and this is how it connects to Trump. He took the old racial rage that was very explicit, like think about the, the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson, where you could say anything to a black person in the South and just verbally abuse them viciously. Wallace saw that that wasn't going to be acceptable, and he switched the rhetoric from a hatred of blacks directly to a hatred of government. But people understood what it was about, and government was the force driving us to be a more inclusive country. And so Republican politicians since then, and, and, and commentators like Rush Limbaugh, going through Gingrich to Paul Ryan now, et cetera, they all practice dog whistles. Now, step four, Trump comes along and he expands the list of people that he doesn't like from African Americans back when to all minorities, women, immigrants, et cetera, everybody who's not a white male. And in doing that, the really interesting thing, and this is what my article in the American Prospect talked about in Chapter 7 of my book talks about, he, he acts like an older Southern demagogue. The guy's from New York, right? He's a New York billionaire. But his, his, his actions, his campaign, the, the style of campaigning he does, where he's constantly attacking people, it's all about, I'm in charge, trust me, that's his ethos, and there's not much issues. It, you know, we know about the wall, but there's not much else substance to him. And then it's basically fear them. And that's what Southern politics was about. It's always about fear the other, meaning the blacks. And we can't do anything in terms of government social policy because that would be a bad thing. And, and Trump's playing into that. So Trump's taken over the party. There's, there's a rift inside the Democratic Party. But I know you talked about this on your, on your show recently, that, that thing that Clinton, that Hillary's doing with the alt-right, Yep. That takes the rest of the GOP off the hook. She's been criticized for that, and I think rightly. We don't, it's easy to say that Trump is appealing to kind of the neo-Nazis and the Klan element that's out there on the far, far right. But what I'm pointing out is what's happened to the Republican Party with, and, and Trump's riding this wave and he helps create it, is the Republican Party keeps shifting every election, it seems, every presidential election, further and further to the right. They're not fascist yet, like in Europe, but they've moved past classic conservatives, like George Will leaves the party. Robert Dole says, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know who, this, who these people are. And so now it's something new, and I, I call it the right, or another word I use in the book is illiberal, meaning, you know, people that have a little bit of authoritarian tendency and they're not comfortable with democracy and inclusion. Trump is speaking for those people. Yes, and there's a fight within the Republican Party, over Trump and the establishment wants to control things. But, you know, we know that Ryan and Cruz, think about it, Ryan and Cruz, Paul Ryan and Ted Cruz, they're the leading lights of the younger generation. Ted Cruz grows up on Hayek, who's famous for his book in the 40s about the dangers of communism. But his argument was this. Basically, any government, any expansion of government to have any modest welfare state is a slippery slope to socialism and it's just a totally bogus argument, and I show exactly why in the book. And Cruz, Cruz, I mean, and Ryan, so that's Cruz, is, is hooked into Hayek at a young age. Ryan is infatuated with Ayn Rand, the novelist, the right-wing novelist. 
her books are dangerous in the sense because they look like they're John Wayne um, noir kind of pieces, and they have good stories. They're not high literature, but they're good stories. But the background to that is she was devoted to a crude understanding of Friedrich Nietzsche, another European intellectual who, like Hayek, was from over there. He wasn't American at all, and somehow that that got translated here. Nietzsche, for just one more second, is he hates democracy. He wants to have elites run things and be able to do whatever they want. And so that's the influence. That's Paul Ryan's giving his, you know, it's famous. He gives his staff these books to read. But the inner message is not healthy for American democracy. So Trump is leading the charge with, in terms of the working class rage on the right, which is understandable. But there's, a, you know, McConnell's involved with this. They all are part of, you know, I call, call, almost call them the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in terms of their danger to American democracy. Um, I want to talk about why you think, or, or, you know, I mean, really, when we look at it, the GOP did have at some point, at least in the primaries, before Trump became mm-hmm. the presumptive and then the actual nominee, they, they had the ability to try and take their party back or steer it in a direction different than he was and continues to and where it is now. Why, yeah. do, why don't you think they did that? Well, I think partially it was just the result of having such a wide, big, large primary field. And so that's part of it with 17 people running. And then second, Jeb Bush just wasn't as strong a candidate as his brother and people expected him to be, but he was kind of dull on the stump. Um, Walker kind of washed out early. He didn't seem to have it at a high level. And so people that might have been more of alternatives on the classic conservative side, the Walkers to the right, Kasich, you know, he hangs in there. I think it's partially that. And just the immigration issue just lit up a fire. Now, you're, you're, you know California well. I was editorial page editor of the Pasadena Star News back in the 90s, and when Prop 87 happened, we got lit up with mail. It was amazing, and I think that's what's happening with the immigration issue nationally this year. Just there's so much angst and anger about it among whites and fear, right? And so even though we don't, even if you build a wall, it'd be stupid now because we don't have a flood of people coming anymore. Um, So I I think the Republicans, if it was a smaller field, he might have been bumped out, but he wasn't. He he used the, the big field and was able to manipulate his way through I want to also talk about what you think will happen. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but in having uh, this research, I mean, well, well, first of all, is is Trump, I mean, you know, for those that haven't got your book yet, and they should, but is Trump filled with this, is Trump fueled by the rage of the Republican Party supporting him? And is that rage coming from a party that they're just disillusioned, uh, you know, with and moving away from? Or is Trump filled with rage and they're following him blindly. I think it's more that Trump is an astute politician and he's pandering. And it's like George Wallace. George Wallace had a mentor, this guy named Big Jim, who was six seven, and he would get off the stand in the Old South. The Old South, this is like the 40s and 50s, and would shake the first black person's hand he could find. So he said, he, was, he showed everybody, you can, don't have to be a racist to get elected. And then Wallace was his protege, but then the Supreme Court decision came down with Brown, and the South got scared, and everybody moved 
to stop everything, and he got beat in his first run for governorship. And he famously said, I will not be out inward again. And he shifted, and he, he, it was calculated. With Trump, I think he just saw a chance, and he seized the anger, and he tapped into it. I think if the party, I think he's responding to what's out there. I don't think it's, I think he's, he's a chameleon. And the danger with him long-term is that you might get another guy who's a demagogue. He's a great demagogue, which is terrifying, who has a sweeter message. So if we get past Trump, and I hope we do, we may, we will probably still be dealing with this element in our politics. Um, in, 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 interesting, though. And also, um, you wrote about Trump and the racial politics of the South, um, and you just talked about it here on the show. Um, but something I wanted to ask you, in 2016, uh-huh. when, you, when you have that, as you wrote, the legacy of slavery and segregation creeps northward. But as you, ha- as we have that, unfortunately, in 2016, how do you appeal to minorities who are growing faster than the white people that are the majority of the supporters of Trump who say they're going to vote for him in November? I mean, how do you stand there and say, you know, I think you have too many voting rights. You know, I'm with the party on this. I'm with the party on that. But, you know, I like black people. Vote for me. You know what I mean? I mean, how, 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 do, you, how do you do that when you just look at this dynamic of, of the racial politics that you spoke of earlier? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the answer to that is partially going to be the Democrats doing better in the South. It's interesting. The Democrats did really well. There was a guy named, who's now Secretary of the Navy, Ray Malbus, I think is his name. He got, he, he won Forty percent of the white vote in Mississippi when he became governor back in Bill Clinton's day. So you had Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Ray, and then the white vote shifted more and more to the Republican side. If somehow the Democrats can get competitive again, and they're doing this certainly. Look, our vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side is from Virginia. We're doing better in terms of the Democrats with North Carolina. As the Democrats pick off those states, then I think that will force the Republicans to shift back and be more reasonable about inclusion. Because I don't think, not everybody on the Republican side is is an outright racist. It's it's just a lot of times the the counties and areas of states that are the most afraid of immigration don't have that many immigrants in their midst. It's strange. It's it's kind of this fear of the other. And we've we've had nativist periods in the country before, like the 1920s, so I think we can work our way out of it. It's just it's just a danger that we get caught by this wave right now. And the danger is magnified because you have some people on the business class that should know better, um, that dislike Hillary enough to say, you know, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Trump, or I don't even care about Trump. I just want the rhetoric of the right, lower taxes, uh, less regulation, and they stay in a party that is supporting a nominee who's, not only a demagogue and dangerous, but a know-nothing in terms of. But not but it would it would, it would seem it, it would seem sadly that all they care about is winning. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 It's not it's, it's not a good situation. Um. You know, and, and and because of the way the press works, and you know this well, and I know it well, they, the press loves a horse race in terms of. The, the group think in, in the press um, and the pack journalism, and so things will tighten as we go toward um, toward November. And Paul Krugman wrote a very nice piece last week saying, you know, I remember the Bush 2000 election, and people did not, in the press, did not give George W. enough of a critique, and, and they 
savage gore when he didn't deserve it. And so we've got to be careful that that doesn't happen again. Um, when we look at after November, and hopefully America will come to its senses, even Republicans and even some people right now supporting Trump every time he opens his mouth. Or i got to say he's been sounding a bit, a bit, just a bit more presidential. I mean, mm-hmm. he's been saying some crazy things like, with you know about Putin yesterday or the generals, but that's not as bad as ban all Muslims and you know Mexico mm-hmm. doesn't send us their best and you know my daughter's so right. hot I would have dated her. I mean the list goes on. If he loses, and I certainly hope he does, what would you predict happens going forward for the Republican Party after the Trump tornado? Um, they have some real soul searching to do. I mean, Norm Ornstein, who did a very nice blurb for my book, you know, the scholar at the AEI in Washington. Um, who's been watching with kind of incredulity at, at Congress falling apart for a few years. Um, he wrote a piece about how some of the leading Republicans that should know better were saying, we've got to get ready to obstruct, obstruct, obstruct Hillary like we did with Obama. And he's saying, no, no, that strategy failed, and that would be terrible for the country. So I think, you know, people like the George Will types, the people... Um, that have some sanity and some thought and know that this was the party of Lincoln, this was the party of, you know, lots of good people throughout history. I mean, Bob Dole is a hero in my book, that we have to return to what the Republican Party was, it's the party for, you know, slightly smaller government. It's party for kind of going slightly slower on things. It's this Burkean conservatism that um, David Brooks stands for in the New York Times. But they've got a battle. They have to, the moderates who lost control of their party, they have to come back and take it back. It's going to be a struggle because the Ryan people and the Cruz people, they're, they're on the right. They're, they're not moderates, right? And so it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be ugly, and, and we, you know, it's, it's, it, it's critical for the country that the Republicans figure out what they're doing. And we hope that they'll, they'll make a, a, a wise decision. Or if we Democrats like me get popcorn and watch them not. Uh, but any, anyway, thank you uh, for joining us. More than a pleasure to have you with us. And like I said, you got to pick up his new book, Trumps and the Roots of Rage, The Republican Right and the Authoritarian Threat, available at Amazon.com. Our guest has been Kevin O'Leary. Check it out. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time, you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.